0: wonderful time together as we do that Colossians chapter 1 if you'll turn there we're going to finish chapter one this morning we've gone as far as verse 24 if you're visiting with us we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse and and uh, we have been in chapter one for the last several weeks and we're going to finish it this morning and if you recall as we opened up the book of Colossians that There was a disciple of Paul's named Epaphras, and he probably was one that was there. We uh, know that Paul was in the city of Ephesus for three years, longer than any other place on his missionary journeys. There was a lot of fruit that took place in Paul's ministry. And what Paul did is he had this school where he taught young disciples, young men, uh, the word of God and discipled them. Well, many of those went out and planted churches, churches throughout Proconsular Asia. Colossae would be one of those churches that would be established. And there's no record of Paul visiting Colossae. He did not, uh, uh, you know, start the church of Colossae, but he knew the Christians that were there. And Epaphras, as he is called a fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ, he very well could have been the pastor or at least an elder at the church of Colossae. He would travel from Classe, again located in proconsular Asia, Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, and he would make that difficult journey to Rome where Paul was in prison. And he would bring, bring a report to the great apostle. Uh, remember, Paul is under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, waiting to go on trial before the emperor of Rome. And as he brings word, as Paul was able to have visitors, he would bring a report saying that the Christians there in Colossae, they're they're continuing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're showing love for, for the saints. And also we know that uh, they have a perspective of heaven, of eternity, and fruit is being produced in their lives. So they were doing well in a number of areas, but also a Epaphras would bring some concern to Paul what was taking place as well. And before we talk about that, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we are here to read the written word of God. And Lord, I pray that we would be ones to be attentive, that we'd have our ringers off our phones, that we'd be settled. And Lord, the ministry of edification and instruction and exhortation would take place. Lord, I thank you that we can be here and those who are joining us uh, online. And I thank you that we can be here to be benefited from the study this morning. So take your word and work it in our hearts. And I pray that every single one of us would leave this place saying that I heard from the Lord. And I was benefited from being here. And I thank you for us having the opportunity, the body of Christ, to come together. And Lord, we just give this time to you in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, so the concern that Epaphras would bring back to Paul was this: There's a group of people that are coming into the church. They've infiltrated the church, and not only in Colossae but the churches throughout Proconsular Asia, and they claim to have this superior knowledge. They were called Gnostics, which literally means to know. Hey, we have this superior, unique knowledge that you Christians in Colossae don't have, so you have to listen to us. They were very puffed up, they were prideful, and they were teaching their false doctrine in the church. And one of the things to keep in mind is when you talk about cults or those who are uh, giving their false doctrine, a false Jesus that one of the things that they will say to you and to me is that we have special knowledge. We have unique knowledge. We have a new revelation. And you don't have it, and you need to listen to us, and we want to give it to you because we're right. And that's what the Gnostics were saying. But as we look at this, they were saying they had this special anointing and all of this. Paul is going to refute them. And as we have seen over the last couple weeks, and we'll continue to read and study as we go through the book of Colossians, Paul is establishing them in truth once again. He wrote that, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And what he was doing is he was establishing his apostolic authority. I am not a self-appointed apostle, but by God's calling and will, I'm an apostle. And he refused what the Gnostics were promoting and we left off last time at verse 23 which Paul is is writing to those Christians in Colossae and they're also for for you these words in me because this is God's word put to the page and we know that it is preserved for all eternity and it is for you and for me as well but he tells them and it's a word for us don't get distracted by this false teaching uh, don't be taken away from the hope of the gospel and Paul would give them truth once again concerning the sufficiency of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, and the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. So as we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, verse 15, not that he is similar to God, but he is the exact representation and manifestation of God. Even as in that upper room, as Philip said, show us the Father, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the creator of all things. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things consist, as we looked at that section in verses 15 through 17. It isn't that he was created and then he created the world and the heavens. He is before all creation, the firstborn of creation. He's the creator, not the created. He is the head of the church, the firstborn of the dead, verse 18. As we discussed last time, Jesus was first to resurrect, never to die again. It was a bodily death on Calvary as he was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. He suffered in ways that we can't fully understand. They put that scourge of of nine tails on his back. They tore his skin off his back as they scourged him. They beat him. They pulled out his beard. And they nailed him to a cross. And we know that he was put into a tomb and he bodily resurrected. You see, the Gnostics were saying that Jesus didn't have a body. And in verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, that is, in Jesus, dwells the complete and full deity of God. Jesus is fully God. And you have been reconciled to the Father, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus has brought reconciliation to the Father for you and for me. And then that glorious, glorious statement that he makes that one day you and I, because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, that we're going to be presented in his sight, holy and blameless and above reproach. And I know that we've taken our time going through this chapter, but extremely important that we be established in these truths. And as we finish the chapter this morning, we're going to see that the Apostle is going to talk about his service for Christ. Let's begin to read that in verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the the church. And just as we saw in our recent study of that other prison epistle, Philippians, We know that Paul expresses his joy even in the midst of his sufferings. And Paul was one that truly suffered for the sake of the gospel. Remember, as he's chained to a Roman guard, he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. If he's going to be put to death or he'll end up being released. And in this time here, he continued to worship the Lord. He continued to rejoice in the ministry that God had given to him. And Paul had an incredible ministry But he also had a very difficult ministry, which included much tribulation and trials and persecution and affliction. I think about in the early days of the church in Acts chapter 5, when the church was first started there in Jerusalem, that the religious council, the Sanhedrin, they would arrest the apostles, Peter and John and the others, and put them on trial and told them that you quit filling Jerusalem with your doctrine, quit fell in Jerusalem with the name of Jesus. And the response of the apostles was, we're going to obey God over men. How can we deny the wonderful works of God? And they were beaten, the apostles were, and then they were let go. And as you read that chapter in chapter 5, you read that the apostles departed from the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And I think about the sufferings and the affliction of the Apostle Paul, the apostles in the early church, the Christians in the first century. And I think, how could they do that? How could they they continue to do their ministry and presenting the gospel and living for Christ and being so dedicated to Christ? How can you and I in this century that we see that there's more of an attack on Christianity and on Christians around the world and even in our own nation. How can we continue to be faithful to the Lord? How can we continue to be strong in the Lord and our ministry for him and living for him? Well, I think a couple of things worth mentioning, and that is, number one, they had a proper perspective of eternity. And we're going to see later on in this letter that Paul writes to the Christians at Colossae, he's going to mention that. But before his imprisonment, he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, the sufferings, the afflictions that, that you and I might experience as a Christian, it's but for a moment in comparison to eternity and the glory that awaits And listen, I don't want to ever make light of the sufferings or the difficulties that we go through as a Christian. We need to understand that when we come to Christ, the world is not going to applaud us. The world is not going to have a love for us. The world's going to hate us. And Jesus said that, that the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. And the world is going to come against us and persecute us and afflict us to some degree. And that includes the relationships that we have that are strained and severed and people coming against us at work or whatever the case might be. And those are very difficult times. But remember, Christian, this, that we are not of the world. We are in the world, but the world hates us. And even as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3 and remind us that we are citizens of heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we belong to an eternal kingdom. And you and I are to keep an eternal perspective in knowing that this world is temporary. And don't lose sight of the eternal and the glory that awaits us when we go home to be with him. The glory that awaits us is far greater than any affliction that we go through. And yes, the temporal hurts, but we need to keep our eyes on the things above, not on the things of the world, as Paul will write later in this letter. So Paul and the other apostles in any of us, we are to rejoice in the sufferings and afflictions for Christ. And we can do that because, number one, we have a proper perspective of eternity. Then secondly, and I've mentioned this many times before, and I'm going to continue to mention it, That we are to have a deep love and close fellowship with the one who is eternal. You see, we are to be ones that we are to have that closeness and to grow in our love for him. Even as in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, then Paul would write to them and say that it's the love of Christ that constrains me or motivates me. And as we have discussed in our previous studies, that Paul's prayer, even in prison, was, I want to know you, Lord. I want to draw closer to you. I want to know your grace. Oh, that I may know you, as he wrote to the Philippian believers, and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings being made conformable unto your death. And he was just so amazed at the incredible grace and love of God that was extended to him to save him, to use him for the gospel message. And all the religiousness, as the apostle would write, I count it as worthless, as dung, for the knowledge of Jesus Christ, a close personal relationship and intimacy with my Lord, who is real in my heart. I will rejoice, and I will consider it an honor and a privilege and a joy to suffer for my Lord who suffered for me. And because Paul looked at what Jesus did on Calvary's cross for him, And Christ's love demonstrated for him. And as we do the same, his love proved to us by dying for us. And because he first loved us, we now love him. And that love, listen, you will be able to do more. That love will be worked out in serving him and living for him. And it motivates us, even if it means difficulty and affliction. So we are to keep an eternal perspective. I like what Warren Worsby, I read once, he said, Heaven is, is, is more than a destination, it's a motivation. And we are to be one that grows in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, just loving him, walking with him, and joining him. But thirdly, as I draw attention back here to our text in verse 24, what we read, but Paul kept committed to serving the Lord and rejoicing in his affliction, that he would also say this, thirdly, notice that he writes that I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, for you in Colossae. He had a love for and a concern for the Christians. He knew that as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle for Christ, it would help and bless and benefit the believers, and we know that to be true. He's establishing them in the truth, in the truth in the preeminence and deity of Jesus Christ in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, in the work and person of Jesus Christ that the Gnostics were pulling them away from. He is encouraging them to have an eternal perspective. You might recall that in the other prison epistle to the Philippians, he would say, I know you're concerned for me, but my chains are for the furtherance of the gospel. They're in Christ. And it's, it's for the benefit of Of you, as I minister, as I pray, as I write these prison epistles that are established for us for all eternity, part of the canon of Scripture, we know that Paul would continue to minister even though he was in prison, and he did it for their spiritual good. Listen, how is this worked out in our own lives? As you minister to others, it's not always easy. Parents, as you minister to your children, as you make a decision, we're going to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. As dads, as you make that decision, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And our home is going to honor the Lord. And I'm going to lead this family the way that you desire for me to lead. Whoever we are in whatever state that we're in, that as we say, I'm gonna follow you, Lord, and I'm gonna be committed to you, and I'm not going to give in to the pressure of what modern culture and the world tells me that I am to accept and to celebrate, that I'm going to be dedicated to you, that as we minister God's truth and love and light to others, it's going to benefit them. And I know it's not always easy. It isn't for me. But how this speaks to me and hopefully to you, to not quit. But to keep ministering, don't compromise, but be committed. Because it is for the benefit and blessing to others and to rejoice in that. As Paul would write in First Corinthians chapter 15, the last verse, that therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And as we are committed to the Lord, and committed to giving his word. And as we do the work of the Lord and live for him. It's going to be a blessing to others. Even when the afflictions and the difficulties come our way. And it will. It will. And don't lose your joy. And that's one of the things I learned from the apostle. He didn't lose his joy. He would express his joy. Rejoicing in the Lord. Desiring to know the Lord even in the most difficult of times. And I think about how earlier that Paul, when he was making his way to Jerusalem, that he would say, I know that chains and tribulations await me, but I don't count my life dear to myself. For I'm determined to finish my race with joy of the ministry of the gospel that has been given to me. And that's my prayer. Lord, please help me not to lose my joy. I don't want anyone to take my joy away from me. I want to finish my race with joy. To rejoice in you, even in the difficulties and afflictions that I might go through, serving you, Lord, and serving others, knowing that our labor is not in vain. And then Paul goes on to write in verse 24, just read it again, and to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, some read this, and we can think, what is Paul talking about? The afflictions of Christ is lacking? What Jesus suffered? his suffering on the cross is not sufficient for my salvation is that what paul is telling us of course not we know that remember the context here paul is not talking about salvation he's talking about his service for christ and remember that throughout the new testament that paul was a champion to bring the message of the sufficiency of the christ uh, of the cross of christ his suffering on the cross his dying on the cross sufficient for forgiveness and salvation. So I believe what Paul is referring to here is, I rejoice in my suffering in Christ for you, the afflictions of Christ, the body, the church. In other words, as we are afflicted for Christ's sake, in a sense, Jesus is afflicted. And the word here for affliction in the verse means distress. It means pressure or trouble, which Paul had plenty of. It refers to the trials of life. We are the body of Christ, and Christ does suffer when Christians suffer for him. And we see that in Acts chapter 9, right, in the account of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul, chapter 8 of Acts, caused havoc on the church. He was persecuting the Christians, and he he was dragging them out of their homes. That word havoc is like a, a wild animal out of control, like a shark after blood. And he's making his way up to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. And on his way, he had an encounter with the Lord. The Lord met him there. And in that conversion, it was Jesus that would say, as he Saul was knocked to the ground, Paul the apostle, before, you know, he, he was converted. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, the Lord said. So since the church is Christ's body, he is afflicted. When we are afflicted and for the sake of the Christ's body, Paul willingly suffered in Philippians chapter one, verse twenty nine. For it is to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that is for all of us, because those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, as Paul would write in Second Timothy, chapter three. Not that you might suffer persecution or it's a possibility Or I hope it doesn't happen. You will suffer persecution to one degree or another. But as we continue in verse 25. at which I became a minister. According to the stewardship from God. Which was given to me. For you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages. And from generations. But now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known. Verse 27. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Among the Gentiles which is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul oftentimes, as he does here in verse 25, referred to himself as a minister. And to remind you what that word minister simply means, it means to be a servant. Paul tells that us that I am a minister of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, according to the stewardship of God. I have responsibilities as a minister, and that is verse 25, I am a steward by and from god to fulfill the word of god now a steward as many of you know was a servant who took care of the master's goods able to administrate to pull out the master's good when he needed them Uh, the steward knew where they were you and i are stewards minister of the word of god in its fullness and paul here says i am a servant of jesus christ the steward of God's word, to give to you in its fullness, and he would do that. Now, again, in that school of Tyrannus in Ephesus for two years, he would give them the whole counsel of God's word. I have not neglected to give you the whole counsel of God's word. We know that from Acts chapter 20. And I've said this many times before, but this is really important. I believe that the one that God is going to use effectively is the servant, is the steward, is the minister of God's word to give to others. There's a lot of voices out there, isn't there? There's a lot of talking heads out there on TV and on the radio and talk shows and analysis and endless podcasts, opinions, world's philosophy, all of this. But the one who truly is going to be used of the Lord is the one who's going to be able to give God's word to others. And to give God's word to others, you need to know God's word. To give them the hope, the only hope that there truly is, the hope of the gospel. To give them truth. A lot of people say, this is truth. And and this is truth. We know that God's word is truth. To give them the truth of God's word. And always remember this. Never forget this. There is power in the gospel. There's power in the word of God. And truth to give to others that they may have a hope and know truth and be established in the things of the Lord. God is going to use the one who's able to bring up those scripture, to be able to to minister his word to others. to, To know how to pull out the master's good. He knows where they were. And as you continue growing in the word of God, coming here growing in your devotions, growing in God's word, don't stop in that. You're going to be able to minister to others very effectively in the world that we live in because people have questions. They're confused. They don't know what's true anymore. We have truth to give to them. You be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. And I believe this is of my own opinion, and I don't say this critically. I say this brokenheartedly, that that's being lost in the church today. Because what can happen in so many ministries and churches, and I'm not saying they're all like this, but the emphasis can be programs and hype and entertainment. There's no power in hype. If you just give people hype, then you give them no hope. There's no power in entertainment. There's no power in those things. There is power, as I said, in God's word and God's love and in the gospel message. There's power in that. And that's what we're to give to others and be a good steward that you may be able to give a defense, to be able to give God's word at that right moment, to speak truth into people's life. And not only a steward of the word of God, but to bring you specifically, verse 26, the mystery, the riches of the glory of this mystery. So Paul not only given the church the fullness of the word of God, but also mystery revealed. The mystery that has been hidden from ages and from generations past, but now being revealed to the saints. Now, mystery—that word in the New Testament that we read here—it doesn't have the meaning like we think. We can't figure it out. Uh, you know, we we don't know what it means or who done it kind of deal. But in the New Testament definition of mystery, it's defined here in verse twenty-six by Paul. It's the truth that was previously hidden, but now is revealed to the church. Is a truth that now can be understood. Previously, it wasn't understood. It wasn't understood by the Jews. They, they didn't understand all the prophetic passages relating to Jesus Christ. And you Gentiles previously didn't have access to the precious promises of the word. But now in the church age, coming together as one... The new song that we will sing before the Lord in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, that you have redeemed us by your blood of every tribe, tongues, people, and nation. Coming together, we can understand all of us this, this truth that Paul is revealing. And the apostle says, here's the mystery revealed. It's my responsibility make sure that you understand this. This is the hope of glory, the reality of glory. Here it is, verse 27. Christ in you. Christ in you. You, as a believer, are indwelt by Christ, the hope of glory. Even as Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And Paul now is reiterating this wonderful truth once again, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Sometimes over the years I've heard people say to me, I I want to, to see the glory of God. They want to have a glorious experience in the Lord. And Paul says, here's the reality of glory is this. That Christ is in you, dwells in you. Even as Jesus himself would say, if any man obey my words, then I and my Father will come into him. The Lord coming into our hearts. And we're not talking about the Christ consciousness. And I mention that because I can see a person with a new age bent really jumping on this. And saying, oh yes, Christ in you, the Christ consciousness. No, that's not what is being talked about that so many New Agers and Eastern mystics talk about. We're talking about as a believer coming to Jesus in faith that God now dwells in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Taking up residence in you. That's an amazing, glorious thought. That God lives in my heart. I think of the dedication of Solomon at the temple, the beautiful temple that he built, all those chapters of the description of the, the temple, the first temple built by Solomon, the gold, the ornate stones. Incredible. I would have loved to have seen it. And as he's dedicating the temple, he says, this building cannot contain you, Lord, and neither can the heavens and the earth. It's all in the palm of his hand. And here the creator of all things, he lives in my heart. He dwells in my heart As a believer, that's powerful. Taking up residence in us. And now you, believers, and you at Colossae realize that you have access to the truth of the gospel. Did Jesus Christ die for your sins? And you have access to the hope of glory, the reality of heaven, because of you coming to him in faith. And know the mystery, it's Christ living in you. So what does that mean for you and for me today? Don't miss this. It's more than Jesus telling us what to do, God instructing us. And, yes, we read the word, and that's very important. That's an important ministry taking place. But, you see, it's more than that. You can come to me some area of your life, and I can say, this is what you're to do. But here's the thing. I can't give you the power to do it. The Lord tells you how to live and what to do in any area of your life, and then he gives you the power to do it to give you the power to do what he tells you to do. It's the Holy Spirit of God empowering you and guiding you and teaching you and directing you and speaking to you in that still small voice, giving you the right words to say at that particular moment that you talk with someone, giving you the appropriate scripture, scripture to share. It's the reality of God being worked out in your life because Christ is in you and he dwells in you. And what the Holy Spirit testifies to you will never contradict what the word of God says. It is Christ and loving him and living a newness of life. Empowering you to do what you cannot do in the flesh. Christ dwells in your heart. It literally means to make it home in your heart. So there is the Holy Spirit teaching you, empowering you, guiding you in your life during the day. And it is of my opinion and my thought that there are many Christians their walk is dry and routine and mundane because they've forgotten this wonderful truth. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And he's going to put his will on your heart. And it causes you to have that dynamic, exciting Christian life as you listen to his voice. Don't lose that. You see, we don't just study the word of God intellectually or experience to to just, you know, have as a Christian. It is something that God makes real in our hearts to live the way that he's called us to. They're growing our love for him. They help us to minister and be a blessing to others, to be a light to others. And I think that the early church was so dynamic because they were in tune with this truth. And then in verse 28 to the end of the chapter, can we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or that is mature in Christ Jesus? To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I labor, he says, I work to bring you the fullness of the word of God, to reveal and share this marvelous mystery to you, Christ in you. I preach Jesus, verse 28, Warning against the Gnostics, false doctrine concerning Jesus, teaching truth that you may be perfect or that is mature, that's what it means. The way to maturity is be established in the Word of God. Can I say that again? The way to maturity is be established in the Word of God. Walking in that newness of life that we just talked about. And because he works in me mightily, he works in me maturity. Mom and dads, listen. You want to effectively communicate to your kids and minister to them? You who want to minister to friends, to family, whatever state you're in, wherever you're placed, to be able to effectively minister to those who are linked to you in your life. What's being worked out in your life? You who desire to minister to those around you, The fruit that ultimately will be produced in your ministry to others is what personally is being worked out through you and in your life and seen by others in your life. And again, it is of my opinion, and this is for me too, I believe that some are so ineffective in their ministry to others is because it can be just sharing a lot of knowledge, But what they're sharing is not being worked out in the life of that person who is sharing. Whether it's teaching, whether it's discipling, correcting. You see, if it isn't being worked out in your life, then you're not going to be as effective in your ministering to others. You won't impact others. And as I said, this is convicting for me. Because when I give a teaching or give edification or instruction to you in the Word, I ask the Lord, Lord, is this being worked out in my life? It's not just to be a lesson that I whipped up during the week, but is it being worked out in my life? And none of us do this perfectly. So you're wondering what to share with your kids, with your grandkids, with your friends, with your relatives, with others. Share about what is being worked out by God in your life. Because it's not just how much you know. It's am I living and is it being worked out in my life what I know? Is it real? What you know is to you and has it been worked out in your life? And if it is, and your kids and your grandkids and your relatives and your friends and your coworkers see that when you speak to others. Listen, there's going to be an anointing. And it will be real. And it will be impacting. Amen. Amen. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this and this word and this chapter. Such an incredible chapter. To benefit us and to help us and instruct us. And, Lord, I know that even as we end the service here in a few minutes, we're to continue on with these things, to pray through these things that we've learned, to understand that we are stewards of of the manifest Word of God, to be able to pull out the Word of God, to give to others. And, Lord, not just what we know, but how it's worked out in our lives. They see the reality of Jesus. And, Lord, I know for me, I'll speak for myself. I can fall short. And, and Lord, help me to be a light, to be seen of others, to be sensitive to your leading because Christ dwells in me. I thank you that you're in my heart. To teach me and guide me and direct me and empower me to live a life for you. And, Lord, I pray that for all of us as we know it's not just a head knowledge it's it's heart filled and may our cry be oh that I may know you Lord to keep an eternal perspective Lord to rejoice even in the affliction that we might go through as hard as it might be so Father I pray that you would minister these things to us as we go home through the week and the days ahead. Lord, I thank you for the gospel that saves, for the sufficiency of the cross. And I want to pray for anyone who is here. Maybe you're listening online or maybe later on the radio. You've never made a commitment to Christ. The invitation is for you to come to him for salvation, for eternal life, forgiveness, and reconciliation with the Father. He did the work on Calvary's cross and dying for your sins. He rose from the grave. He's alive. He conquered sin and death. He validated what he did on the cross and saying it is finished. He made atonement for your sins. Today is the day of salvation for you. As I said religion won't save you it's relationship and commitment and confessing you are a sinner and surrendering to Jesus right now come as you are come humbly sincerely and you cry out to Jesus and you say I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I believe you died on the cross for me forgive me a sinner and I believe you rose again I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I thank you for the hope of eternity and bringing me into relationship with the Father for this newness of life that I have and to the family of God and the living hope that is given to me through Christ Jesus. I want to grow in your word and mature and be a faithful steward for you. the days of my life in jesus name